Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, host and creator of the Right Fit Method, the key to professional and personal success. Now, let's join Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In uncertain times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Today, I will focus on how to implement my Right Fit Method in your personal life. Have you ever wondered why your search for the Right Fit spouse, the Right Fit house, and even the Right Fit children has not worked? I know why. We search for the best. What's amazing is that if we search for the best, we frequently select wrong fits. Perhaps you are perplexed. Picture a rat-infested barrel of apples. Compare and contrast. Select one. What do you have? A rotten apple. If the person you picked to marry is one of those rotten apples, you have picked the wrong fit. You must search for the right fit. The question is how to find the right fit. To do that, you need to create a blueprint of the right fit for the spouse, house, children, and even your pets. Here's a simple example. If you are planning to buy a car, I expect that you would figure out the specs of the right fit car. This would include the year, model, price, color. The list could go on and on. That list is what I call a blueprint. Is each spec of equal importance? Probably not. I expect that some specs are absolutely necessary, in your mind at least, Others matter less, but nice to have. Weighting the importance of each spec turns the blueprint into a blended blueprint, which is a term I created. If you had lots of blended blueprints, you could stop making wrong choices. I'll show you how to do this during the interview segment of the show. Let's dig deeper. Today, on this special call-in show, the Right Fit Method gets even more personal. What is your secret assumptions quotient? I will demonstrate how my Right Fit Method gets even more personal than my January 13th blockbuster show and uncover how secret erroneous assumptions about our personal lives can be detrimental to achieving and maintaining happiness. During the show, you can take my Secret Assumptions Quotient quiz 
and find out what erroneous assumptions you are making about your personal life that you do not want to share with others. You will also discover why you should not be making any assumptions. With my guest co-host, Virgil Holder, Director of Corporate Recruitment at the prestigious Piedmont Healthcare System in Atlanta, Georgia, I will share fascinating stories about the impact of making erroneous assumptions in our personal lives. I will respond to callers' questions and speak with guests who have unusual personal stories. I will demonstrate how the Right Fit Method, the subject of my book, Win Without Competing, is the key to figuring out the right solutions, not only in your professional life, but also in your personal life. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Virgil. It's a pleasure to be back on the air with you, Arlene. My pleasure as well. I am delighted that you are my guest co-host today. Before I speak with our call-in guests, I want you to take my secret assumptions quotient quiz. Please take a piece of paper and write the numbers 1 to 5 so that you can jot down your response next to each number. Write T if the statement is true and F if the statement is false. Ready? Are you ready, Virgil? Ready to roll. Great. Question one. Finding a spouse requires an exhaustive search in which I must compare and contrast lots of potential possibilities. Don't tell me your answer, Virgil. Hold on to it. Question two. Landing the right spouse is a trial and error situation which requires either living with many different people or marrying more than once. Question three. After marriage, I will persuade my spouse to come around to my way of thinking. Question four. My spouse or significant other can verbally abuse me. Question five. Society dictates that it is better to be unhappily married than to remain single. Hold on to your responses. After Virgil and I talk with the call-in guests, I will give you the answers with explanations. On to my guests. My first guest, Lisa, a business strategy consultant who lives on the West Coast, has been divorced twice. There's hope. She's finally met the right fit man. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Lisa. Thank you, Arlene. I am so happy to be here. My pleasure to have you as my guest. Why did you marry Michael, your first husband? That's a really good question. I was 25, and he was 12 years older than I was, and he seemed to have a lot of things going for him at that time. And I fell in love with him not long after we met, and we moved in together 
I think, after we'd known each other only a couple of months, and we got married a year after we met. And I don't really know why. Okay, well, that's right honest. Thing. I think huh? that's very honest, yeah. that you're saying you really don't know why you married him. What I think is interesting is you made the comment that he had a lot of things going for him. What do you mean about a lot of things going? Was he handsome? Was he rich? What are the exciting things that were going from from your perspective? Well, from from a comparison to the men I had known who were my age, he seemed to be a lot more mature. And, you know, he owned a house, and he had a couple of cars and some money in the bank and a business. And he seemed to have a lot more to offer than the men that were my age. How long did you know him before you accepted his marriage proposal? Eight months. Eight months. Okay, fine. I know from our discussions about your relationship with him that you had told me he was verbally abusive during the marriage. Was he verbally abusive prior to the marriage? There were there were a couple of indications that was where we're going, but not not really. Like I he he actually treated me the same way his dad treated his mother, but I didn't meet his parents till after we had become engaged, and I never actually saw that behavior because his parents lived on the East Coast. So we didn't see them very often, but it wasn't until after we were married that it really got bad because his attitude was he could treat me any way he wanted to because I wasn't going anywhere. That was his example. His parents had been married a long time, 40 years at that time, and his mom got close to leaving once, even had a guy offered to take her away with her four children, and she chose to stay. So his example, Michael's example was he could do whatever he wanted, and as long as we were married, I was going to stay. So basically he treated you like chattel, that he owned oh, yeah. you. Yeah, mm-hmm. he felt that he had owned you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, could you give us some examples of verbal abuse and also... What did you do when he was verbally abusive? Well, his favorite thing to say was, how could you be so stupid? Uh-huh. Even, even if the mistake that I made was correctable, he would still go on and on about how I, how could you possibly make such a mistake like that? And really, if you look up the term in the dictionary for berate, that's exactly what he did all the time. And... About everything, about every choice I made, everything I wanted to do, my friends, my family, everything was like that. So what did you say to him when he made those comments over and over again? Well, in in the beginning, I fought with him about it. And the last six months, I stopped fighting, and I just let him say what he needed to say and then and ignored him. That worked much better. And then the last... Like three months of our marriage, I start asking him some really difficult questions like, you know, would you treat someone you worked with this way? Because we had a business together too. Like, would you treat someone you worked with this way if they made the same exact mistake? And he said, no, I wouldn't. I was like, well, so, why do you treat me this way that way then? And he said, because you're my wife and I can. 
Yeah, he really had a terrible model in terms of his own parents. Mm-hmm. When did you decide to divorce him? And how long were you married at that point? Well, I first realized in January of it was been 1997. We'd been married a year and a half. That what my relationship wasn't very good because I had suspected that I was pregnant, and the last time that had happened, he pretty much accused me of making a big deal out of nothing and made me feel worse because we didn't have sex that often and it wasn't that likely that I was pregnant, but I was late. And I realized that I couldn't actually tell him what I was going through. I couldn't share that whole experience with him. And that indicated to me that there was a real big problem in my relationship. And it wasn't until that August that I actually asked for the divorce. How did he respond? Well, I had asked for counseling before that, and it wasn't until I had my stuff in my car that he's like, okay, I'll go to counseling now. Like, no, too late now. <laughs> he was really upset that I that I actually wanted a divorce. He didn't understand, although I had said very clearly this behavior was unacceptable, and if he didn't change that, I was going to leave. He didn't believe me. His mom never left. Why should he believe me? Even after I had my stuff in the car, he didn't really believe that I was leaving. It's interesting that even when you try to fix the fit, try to fix the relationship, until you were actually going, did he take it seriously that you would leave him? He just mm-hmm. made the erroneous assumption that because your mother stayed, why shouldn't you stay? After all, his mother was chattel. His father owned his mother. So therefore, he owned you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you know if he ever remarried after the divorce? He did, actually. Um, for three years after the divorce, he was really angry with me. Like, he sent me nasty letters, and every time I ran into him, he would berate me some more. It was horrible. So I avoided him at all costs. But after... After about three years, I ran into him socially, and he said, I have a box of stuff for you. So I went by his place and picked it up, and we had a really nice chat. And what had happened is he had actually come to terms with the fact that his anger had nothing to do with me, and it actually had to do with his his parents, his dad and his mom. And he, he actually had that epiphany. And about a year or so after that, I ran into him at a place of employment, actually, with his new wife. They had gotten married, and they have since moved someplace else. I have no idea where he is now. But last time I saw him, he seemed very happy. So maybe he had, do you think he went for therapy and made up his mind he wouldn't do again to someone what he had done to you? No, I think he had that epiphany, and he he did it on his own and decided that was plenty. The, The woman he married is, I don't know her personally, but my friends know her personally, and she's very much a yes woman. So her job in the relationship is to say yes to him. So he didn't put himself in a position where he would have arguments. (laughs) So he married a different kind of woman. Oh, yeah. So in other words, he created another blueprint for himself, 
as to what the right fit would be for him. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Let's go on to Joe. How many years passed before you met and married Joe? Well, actually, I knew Joe before Michael and I got married. Ah. We worked together, and he was married at that time. And we were friends during that, through that whole time. I'd see him occasionally hang out socially, but we weren't very close during those years I was married. And then we actually both ended up getting separated from our spouses at the same time. And our divorces were final one month apart. And we actually moved in together in in April of 98, which would have been, let's see, that's four or five. It's about seven months after I asked for my divorce. And that was the same month my divorce was final. Wasn't exactly so, smart. So that was pretty fast. Mm-hmm. But see, I, I had already known him for about five or six years at that time. When you moved in with him, um, at that point, did you discuss having children? And did you know at that point that the moving in would ultimately lead to marriage? He knew that I wanted a family. We had talked about the fact that I wanted a family, but he he would never say one way or another if he wanted kids. And I figured my assumption was that just because his wife, his first wife didn't want kids, he never really thought about it. That was my assumption. And so I just let it slide that he didn't have a strong opinion one way or the other. But I was very clear that I wanted kids. And... Even before we moved in together, it was our intention to get married. Okay, so you married him, not getting him to commit to wanting children, right, Lisa? That's correct. Okay, so you made the erroneous assumption that he probably would be okay with it. Would you say that's an accurate description? Well, I had seen him with little kids, and he was really good with the little ones, and so I figured he was just afraid. Okay, all right. You did become pregnant. How long after you married him did you become pregnant? We were married three years, and we had been together for five at that point. What did he say when you told him you were pregnant? He was quite surprised because we I had finally gotten him to agree to try to get pregnant. And the very first time we tried, we got pregnant. And so he was absolutely shocked that it had happened. What happened when you told him that you had a miscarriage? Well, the the baby was actually born at 21 weeks gestation, and 20 weeks is considered a miscarriage. 21 weeks, I actually had labor and delivered a baby. Ah. And him and everything. So I had a baby. Okay. And he was there with me in the delivery room, and it was... 
it was hard for him to see me in pain. And at that point, halfway through the pregnancy, he was kind of starting to feel a little bit connected to the baby, maybe, but not as much as me, obviously. But the baby did not survive, is that correct, Lisa? Yeah, viability doesn't happen until about 26 weeks. So 21 weeks, there's just no way, there's no medical intervention or anything. But he he tried to breathe and lived for an hour and was the most beautiful baby I have ever seen. So for you, it was, an, it was really a very painful, painful experience. Yes and no, because that, Joshua was his name, and he... He was here for a purpose. It just was a really short one. And I felt his presence. He wasn't just a baby. He was a person. And holding him was a gift. And it was it was very difficult for me to get over that, to, to grieve, because I grieved not just that baby, but also the loss of my pregnancy and not being able to continue the pregnancy. And it was a very challenging time for me. From a from a grief standpoint, the the actual experience itself wasn't wasn't bad. It was afterwards. It was it was grieving the plans I had had for him and the you know the just being the hardest part was just getting through the rest of those those five months until my due date was the hardest part and telling my family, my friends. I see. Was he supportive at all during this period of time, or do you think he had a sigh of relief? He was as supportive as he could be. I don't want to judge him and say that he was horrible, because he really was as supportive as he could be. He just didn't have the same experience that I did, so he didn't understand how difficult it was. And I felt like he was actually a little relieved that we had lost the baby. And, and, in fact, a friend of mine was pregnant at the same time and was due the same week. And they would come over for our, our annual barbecue. And after a couple of years, I said I said to Joe after the barbecue was over, I said, you know, this is the first year I didn't look at, at, at little Tommy and think of Joshua. I just saw Tommy as his, as his own self. And Joe's like, why would you even think that? Because he was born at the same time. So I look at that little kid and I think, well, I should have a kid that's that age. But he's, he just didn't understand the long-term repercussions of it, more so. Like in the moment, you know, in the hospital and in the couple of weeks after we lost the baby, he was really supportive. But he didn't understand the long-term consequences and how that affected me. Because losing Joshua changed me, made me a different person, and, and Joe didn't understand that at all. What happened when a friend moved into your home with children? I thought it was the best thing ever. I didn't parent these kids. I was giving our friend a chance to learn how to be a single parent. He'd not done that before. So I didn't parent them, but I loved their energy. There's there's three. They were five, seven, and 11. And I just loved having them around. And Joe tolerated it. It wasn't his favorite thing in the world. And then our friend moved out. He got his house back and took his kids back. And I was 
I was sad to see them go. I was so happy for my friend and sad at the same time. Because I loved having that around. And that night they moved out. Joe says to me, he says, I think we should go out to dinner and celebrate. I'm like, celebrate what? He's like, they're gone. And and it was really in that moment that I realized that what I wanted and what he wanted were different. So that was really the turning point. You experienced loss when your friend and the children moved out. He experienced relief. Yes. How long did you wait to ask for a divorce? Well, that that was an epiphany that made me realize that my relationship wasn't what I had thought it was. So I started looking at my relationship really deeply and being really honest with myself about what I saw. And they moved out in August, and in January I started getting you know, really clear that maybe this isn't what I should be doing, being married. And it wasn't until July that I asked for the divorce. And by that time we had done, we did counseling the year before. We had done counseling actually right about the same time our friend was living with us. So we'd done a couple of months of counseling. And he knew I wasn't happy and... How many years were you married to Joe before you got the divorce? We were married for eight years. Eight years. Okay. And then I know that you dated for a while because you weren't ready to get serious again. And you finally realized that you needed to figure out the right fit prior to marrying again. You created a snapshot of what you were looking for in a person I use the term blueprint. Tell us about the blueprint that you created. Sure. See, I started I started recognizing I couldn't just go date a bunch of people until I found someone that worked. I had to get real clear about what I was looking for. So the guy that I was looking for I didn't think actually existed, but I wanted a guy who was smart enough not to be intimidated by my intelligence who believed that household management was a joint responsibility, who was committed to being the best person possible, and who was somewhat self um, somewhat health conscious, so wasn't looking for, you know, perfectly physically fit, but somebody who cared, who's not afraid of change, who knew how to dance or was willing to learn, who was appreciative of the female body and mine in particular. And he was really willing to explore that entirety of the sexual relationship with me. And who believed that money was a tool rather than a measure of worthiness. And who took responsibility for his own thoughts, feelings, and needs. And then had a strong desire for the family life, you know, including desire for to have children or to adopt or even if he had his own kids. You met Jason. At a dance class. I did. He's 25 and you're 41. Marriage and children are on the horizon. Why is Jason the right fit? And does he really match your blueprint? Well, I met Jason dancing 
So he had one of the things on my list already. And then in our reg- in our conversation, the very first conversation we had, he mentioned something else that was on my list. So I was immediately going, hmm, this guy's interesting. And as we started dating, I discovered things. He would he demonstrated the things on my list. So he would demonstrate that he liked my intelligence or that, you know, he helped me with stuff around the house and I would say something about it. And he's like, of course I'm helping you. It's it's what you do, right? So he, he started demonstrating the things on my list really early on. And so it was only maybe two weeks in to our relationship where we had been dating that he had actually checked off everything on my list. Did he share with you his list? He didn't or really did he have, have a list? <laughs> he he didn't have a very formal list. He he had had a couple of other serious relationships in his life, but nothing that lasted very long. So he was looking for a woman who appreciated him in a way that he hadn't been appreciated before and and a woman who who enjoyed having having a sexual relationship and who thought that was important. And and maybe a couple of other things and that was pretty much his list. He wasn't you know, he's not old enough yet to have the frustration of dating a lot of people and being frustrated. What about the age difference? Are either of you concerned about it? He's absolutely not concerned about it. I I have a few more concerns because although I look great for 40, I'm not sure that at 50 or 60 he'll still think I'm that attractive. But other than that, we it's just not that big a deal. It was at first. First I'm walking around going, I can't believe you're 25. And he's telling his friends he's dating a, you know, 40-year-old cougar and but it's it's not a big deal now. I don't know. What about his parents? How does his father treat his mother? His mom rules their house, actually. His dad is is the breadwinner and and a workaholic, but his mom's the one who who controls the house and it's her it's her feelings and her personality that rule. Is that the situation with you and Jason? No, no. I'm I'm a lot more inclusionary. You know, I like to have his opinion count to make him feel like he's part of the team, and so I'm not I'm not his mother by any stretch of the imagination. But it does make him more accepting of a of a woman who's more knowledgeable or you know who has an opinion than he would be if he'd been raised in a different way. Do you have any doubts about marrying Jason? Not at all. Not at all. Okay, all right. Virgil, did you have a question? What are you, what are your thoughts about uh, Lisa? Well, Lisa, first let me tell you that I am very sorry that you experienced the unhappiness of that first marriage because no one deserves to have that verbal or emotional abuse like you had. Um, but something interests me, too, about what you're saying, Lisa, because to me, I can detect something that's also part of my blueprint, and that is the importance of having children in my family or being a father. And um, I can just share it just quickly. I, 
when I went on my first date with my wife, she had been married once before, and she had a child already, so I didn't know. Did she want to have more children? And at the time, my blueprint included having children of my, biological children of my own. So on my first date, I was very bold and asked her, uh, what do you think about having more children? Um, thankfully, she looked at me and said, well, I would un- she said, I've already had a biological child. I've already experienced it. I don't have to experience it again. But I would understand if I were married to someone who wanted to have a biological child, I could understand it, and I would, that would be fine. So that was a good answer. In the end, we never had a biological child, and the child she had, I adopted, and that's our child. But what I'm wondering is, how did you approach the subject with Jason? How did you find out for certain that he feels the same way you feel about having a child? Because I think that's really important to you. That was actually really easy because within the first week of our dating, he asked me if I wanted kids. Okay, all right. That's interesting, given that he's so young, that he really is focused on that. That's wonderful. Yeah, and it's really it's really fun because he sends me he has like a little few few minutes at work where he has to just kill some time while he's waiting for some computer thing to work, and he'll search the internet and sends me he sends me articles on on having babies after forty and parenting. He's really funny. No, he definitely wants kids. Wonderful. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for sharing your story. I know that our listeners will benefit from your journey. I hope that you and Jason uh, have a wonderful life together. And I look forward to hearing after you get married uh, what's going on in the arena of having children. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. Good. And please do continue uh, joining us. I may bring you back after I finish talking with our next guest. My next guest, Cynthia, is an English teacher and author, lives on the East Coast, and has been divorced once. She transformed her painful search for the right fit man into a creative product. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Cynthia. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. You met and married David when you were in college. The marriage lasted for 13 years. Why did you marry him? At the time, he appealed appealed to me. Uh, I thought he was very kind. And uh, I myself lost my parents when I was very young. So I think that the person that I chose was not the right person. I still had a lot of healing to do from losing my father when I was 17 and losing my mother when I was nine and being on my own in college. Do you think that you married him because you were trying to create a family for yourself? 
Oh, definitely. I think I I married him, and and I'm not passing judgment on him at all. But I I married him for the wrong reasons. It wasn't for money, uh, that's for sure. Because we were both we were both just students, and we were both very young, and we were just going through life. He had also a very hard time in his life. He was a battered child, and so the two of us were were I guess working through things together as uh, young adults. When you were married, you started observing certain things about him that really concerned you. Tell us about that. Well, one of the things that concerned me, and I guess I, in a way I've always been a healer or I guess fixer-upper in, in many ways, and I'm very, very loving and he'd wake up in the middle of the night and he'd be screaming because I imagine that he uh, was from from a beating he got when he was younger. And um, it was those types of things that were the first concerns. And there were times when it, it sort of escalated and he verbally abused me. And through the years, I've changed a great deal. So I'm I'm a lot I'm a lot more independent and tougher. But at the time I was I was not that way. Well, you were young, so yes. and you probably did. You have difficulty speaking up when you were young, Cynthia. Yes, yes. I was. I mean, we had we had a, a quite quite a long marriage, but I don't know if it was based on the right things. And I I had difficulty speaking up and asserting myself. I know you told me that he also became a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker. Yes, you, that's correct. Had you not observed any of that when you met him when you were in college? He gave up smoking for me because I told him that I could never be with anybody that smoked. And uh, because it just, I don't know, I can't help it. Not to offend, it abhors me. But um, And also, I've never drank either. But as time sort of evolved, he would sort of walk around with his, you know, like drinking a beer and things like that, and that was never anything that I had an interest in. You know, what he, actually prompted you to ask for a divorce? Was there a turning point? In Cynthia's story, uh, we had a situation um where basically we've got turning points. Do yeah. we? Do you? Did you have a turning point with David? Uh, yes. I well, things just started to escalate as I, I had been, not I haven't hadn't been able to work for a while, and when I started to feel better and wanted to go back to school and become more independent, David became very threatened. And it all started to escalate into um, fights and things like that, and things that I didn't want to get involved in anymore. It was just hurting me too much. How did he respond when you asked for a divorce? I think the first the first time, and and there was more than one time, because it wasn't. I think I wasn't ready yet. But the first time, he absolutely didn't want me to go, and we tried to work things out. 
and I I believe that everything was tried in the marriage to 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 come to, to that it. end. Everything, everything. I said even voodoo, voodoo therapy. Everything was tried <laughs> in this marriage. And, uh, you know, when it, when it didn't work, the, the marriage counselor looked at me and he said, you know what, it's over. <laughs> and I said, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, you have to accept when it's, a, it's totally the wrong fit and you can't fix it. <laughs> I'm so loyal. I mean, I, I think I was much worse as a, as a younger a younger uh, child. But, uh, I mean, fiercely loyal, you know. And when I did leave, I, I really evolved. It was amazing. But you were set free. You were set yeah. free. You were set free to grow. So um, are you in touch at all with David? No, no, no. I'm not. I mean, he's... I know he's out there. He occasionally asks my friend about me. I have a mutual friend. But I I was very clear that we have no children together. And uh, there was no, I didn't accept any alimony. And there was no need for him to contact me. I mean, on the sort of dire emergency, uh, I, there was really no need because he was contacting me, contacting me constantly. Ah, okay. So you had to really shut the door then. I had to do that. For well, at least you were capable of doing it. Some people have great difficulty and can't do that. So I think that's commendable that you were able to do that. Yes, yes. And it's seldom when I speak of him, if somebody happens to ask or he happens to come up in conversation. This was a very long time ago. I'll, I'll speak about him, but it took me a while to heal from that relationship did he remarry, do you know? I believe, yes, he did remarry, and he did have a child. Okay. After you divorced David, I think not too long after, you met Mark. How many yes. years elapsed between the time you divorced David and met Mark? How many years? I'm yes. looking at... Um, would you say a year, two years, you know, approximately? A, a year. Anybody who I met within the first year, I would just say, I told them that I, I just am freshly divorced and I couldn't form any relationships. And then I met, then I met Mark, and uh, we we were friends, and that slowly evolved. You fell in love with him and wanted to live with him or marry, correct, uh, Cynthia? Yes. yes. Okay. okay. He didn't want to do either. How long did you know him when you discovered that he really didn't uh, want to be intimate on a daily basis? Well, before you judge me, <laughs> I, I did stay in longer than I <laughs> I should have. Uh, but it was well, a great friendship, and I was recovering from my divorce, my, lo my long marriage. And it was I actually went out with him for nine years. I look okay. back and I go, oh, my God. But right. it was wonderful. It was fulfilling for me, and it was only really the last few years that... I wanted something different, and he 
was not able to give me that. I, I think truly he was just limited in that respect. It wasn't that he was in any way um, not a good person. He was just limited in that okay. respect. Yeah, I'm not judging you, but I think what happens is, you know, we all get older and life passes us by. And for women who want to have children, you know, early in life, because I know that you're over 40, for mm-hmm. women who want to have children, they do have to pay attention to the time moving here. Because Absolutely. Other, yeah, otherwise they're going to suddenly say, oh my, I'm now 50 years old and I want a child. This is not exactly the right time. Not that it's impossible, but certainly it's, it's more difficult on a woman to have children as she's older. I mean, there's no question. So I agree with you. Yeah, so it's not a question. So it has to do with, um, I think one issue has to do with the biological clock. So initially then, it was fine that he didn't want to move in together or get married. And then you discovered, then you figured out that it wasn't acceptable. Is that a, a correct characterization uh, of this? It just, I wanted more. And in the beginning, he was truthful. He said, I don't know if I'll ever be able to give you what you want. I'm not sure. And uh, he was truthful with me. And I just said, oh, my God, I can't even imagine having a relationship as intense as the one I just had. And they said, it's not important right now. And it sort of was just left open-ended, and I believe we had a very good relationship, very solid. And it just wasn't something that ever could grow, though. So did you have any particular moment where you said, I will have to stop seeing Mark and turn myself into a new direction. What happened where you stopped seeing him on an ongoing basis? We had uh, talked about moving in together a few times, and then he just was not able to do it. And then at some point where he was even going to get a larger uh place i realized that that wasn't going to happen and i just told myself to stop fooling yourself it's not going to happen and i i gave the relationship up and it, the relationship could have just gone on like this uh for, well, for some for some, very for some women it would have been enough for some yes. women it would be fine you know, if they were very, very busy with their career, maybe they would be feeling the same way so that they wouldn't need what you needed. So for some people it would be fine, but for you it wasn't. And how did he respond when you basically said that this wouldn't be enough and that you would need to basically say goodbye? I know that he's still a friend in your life, but uh, you also have somebody that we'll talk about later on. So what, what did he say? And he went, When I finally really wanted to uh, give this up, he, I mean, he, 
in in every way he was always supportive and he said if this isn't doing it for you anymore i don't want to hold you back if, if it, you know and uh that was that was pretty final for us we didn't go back and forth or do any cha-chas or you know it was just pretty much it was over and that's when i decided to write my book yeah, let's let's talk about that because uh, I know the relationship with Mark caused you significant pain, which led to an act of creativity, your book. So, yeah. how did you decide about gathering the stories that you wrote for those sweet nothings? How did how did the idea come to you? I stayed at my friend Jim was uh, very magnanimous and let me stay at his beach house for a week to recover and during that time I first I started to cry and get all upset and you know what did I do you know everything all the women do, do and all men do when they break up and then I said you know I can write a book <laughs> and I can ask other people what they're doing and I can find out how other people are working through this and by the second day, by the third day, I was still upset. It still hurt me. But I was out there interviewing people on the beach for the first idea of what would be those sweet nothings. Did you have a protocol of questions, or you just went with your gut and uh, recorded? How to, how, what was the procedure like? I never used a tape recorder. I, I, uh, there was a small shop and I went in and I bought a diary and I I started writing from the diary and the name of the diary was Sweet Nothings oh. and I I just oh that was really cute and there was a man and a woman on the front and after that I just started going around and asking questions and everybody talks to me and so it was really easy and once I started to do that, I started to feel better immediately. Because you stopped focusing on yourself and started focusing on others, so you distracted yourself. Yes, I did. Well, sure. I mean, it was it was really a stroke of genius here. And uh, I think it's important for people to learn when they're grieving how to distract themselves so they don't keep sinking lower and lower and lower here. So you really pulled up yourself very quickly it sounds like through all these interviews that you conducted i didn't wait for the phone call i didn't you know i didn't do anything i didn't i didn't intend to go out and meet anyone else with the book i just wanted to go out in pursuit of finding out just well did you have a bad day did you have a bad first meeting what about your relationship how did you solve it and it just turned into a a small book that uh, it's fun. You definitely capture desperation in the stories that you report. <laughs> There's no question, because um, I did read some of those stories. And I also think that there are erroneous assumptions that are inherent sort of underlying or underpinning some of these stories, which is contributing to people's grief. And yeah. in some instances, to me, 
um, the search for the right fit mate sounded addictive. The people felt like they couldn't stop, you know, almost like, you know, in a race and you have to keep running, running, and running. How did you feel when you spoke to some of these people? I was sad. I actually don't depict the book as funny. It's not funny. Oh, no, it's, it's definitely not funny. It's, oh, Lord. It's a, a, uh, very stark, and uh, the poems it's are disturbing. very, very intense. And, but what was actually therapy for these people uh, was that they could talk about it. And you became, even though you, you weren't their therapist, they had somebody to share the story with who was a stranger. So it was easy to tell the story to a stranger. You know, like when you're sitting on a plane and if you want to talk to the person next to you, you know you're not going to see that person again. So you can say basically what you would like to say about yourself. And the stories were anonymous, and I promised anonymity. And I made up, I used fake names and fake places. But everything else was... uh, you know, everything was anonymous, and they, they had no fear. Nobody ever knew who actually told me the stories, and they never will. And so in that way, they, they were able to open up to me. Which is wonderful. Why do you think that they were so desperate in their search? Because people don't understand what it's like to really be by themselves. I think from an early age, we're, we're taught to possibly, you know, have the family, you know, fill our lives. And there is nothing wrong with um, being by yourself sometimes and knowing what that feels like, having productive hobbies. Sometimes, it's good to recover from a relationship, and people don't understand that. They they feel that they have to find someone, that it's really important. And it, if there was an act of desperation in many of the stories, trying to find that right fit. Oh, there's no question. I mean, you really, you, you, you hear the pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, fortunately, you are now in a relationship with Richard. Yes. When I asked you prior to the show about whether he is the right fit, you said it is a work in progress. Yes, I did. What are you trying to fix? I don't fix anything. I don't fix anybody. A work in progress uh, just means that sometimes we have to work it out a little more, you know, uh, in terms of talking. But I happen to feel that Richard is is a wonderful man. Well, fixing, in other words, fixing something is a good thing. It's not a negative thing. Mm. Maybe, in other words, you can have a relationship with somebody that's a wonderful marriage, but there are always things that need to be tweaked to greater or lesser degrees. 
if something has to be tweaked so much that the tweaking isn't doable because both sides won't change, then you have a wrong fit. So fixing something is a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. It, I mean, it depends on if uh, what when you said it, I viewed it as quote unquote trying to change a person, and that's something that you can do. But there's always habits that can be spoke about, or you know, different different things. If if you're unhappy with something, you can talk about it. Right. Yeah. So, but that's that's from my perspective, um, fixing things. Okay. Fixing things, yeah. Yeah, that's the terminology that I use with my right fit method. Now, when we talked, um, I mentioned about a blueprint of the right fit man. Do you have thoughts about your, a blueprint now from having had the relationships that you've had? Um, my ultimate goal in the relationship is to just have a, a relationship that's conducive to happiness and uh, the end goal would just be that both of us are happy in the relationship and I believe that is that is what's happening now I mean I believe both of us are happy in the relationship okay um, but how do you know that he's the right fit because you're happy? Is that is that your way of, of determining that? Uh, I've never really believed in criteria. I believed in uh, a gut feeling, a feeling of emotions. If you're waking up in the morning and you're smiling, if you have a smile on your face most of the day, uh, if, if things are going smoothly and you're not arguing over little things, I... I find that to be good. I mean, of course, love is important, but right. that these little things that you go through day by day, um, that to me is important, just having peace and and happiness. and that To me, that's very important. Virgil, um, what are your thoughts? Well, I tell you what, Cynthia... First, uh, you know, I have to say I admire you for loyally making an effort to adjust that first message, that first marriage, <laughs> so that you could have a right fit. You know, I think it's great that you made that effort. I, I, you know, not everybody does that, and I think, you know, before you leave a marriage, you have to be sure is it something that you can make into a right fit or not. And I, I think when you look back on your years there, I think you, you can not have any regrets. You know, that you spent that time and yeah. made that effort. Now you know you made the right decision to leave. <laughs> you, don't have an, you don't have to wonder. <laughs> but, you know, I was wondering about your current relationship. And, you know, I appreciate where Arlene does use the term fixing. But what about this, Cynthia? What if you think about the term polishing? Mm-hmm. Because you're sort of polishing the relationship, I think. Yes. That you might be more comfortable with that word rather yes. than fixing. But, you know, I, I thought, too, it's interesting you you mentioned that you don't like criteria, but yet, you know, really, when you talked about the gut feeling and an emotional um, uh, decision, 
But you then really discussed points about this gentleman that really are true criteria about a person and a person's personality. Uh, yeah. So you really do have right fit criteria. <laughs> They're just not those mundane little things like, I, I, you know, he has to not leave the toilet seat up. It's not those kind of things. You're really talking about a person. What is the person really like? Uh, the deep, the, the deep down person. Right, because someone who wakes up in the morning smiling is not the same kind of person as the person who wakes up in the morning frowning. So I think you, I think you're selling yourself a little short, Cynthia. I think you, you do have criteria, and I think maybe you found somebody who has it. Yeah. Oh no, I didn't say that he wakes up in the morning smiling. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Virgil, you made an erroneous assumption. I sure did. Yeah, oh, well, that's yeah, me. I'm the one yeah, that's always smiling. Yeah, but she, but, she, was, she was happy in the morning. Yeah, well, she I, I wake up in the morning. in the morning smiling, too, but my wife does not. She doesn't wake up smiling. But, yeah, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not a okay. great smile. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Cynthia, I do want to thank you for sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. That you have helped those listeners who are searching uh, by hearing your intriguing approach and I wish you much success with your special man right now. He's very special. Yes. Let's go back to the secret assumptions quotient quiz. I'm going to read the questions again and give the answers and comment. Question one, finding a spouse requires an exhaustive search in which I must compare and contrast lots of potential possibilities. False. If you have a blueprint of the right fit and you've had enough experience where the blueprint really represents what you are searching for. You don't need to date hundreds and hundreds of men. Question two. Landing the right spouse is a trial and error situation which requires either living with many different people or marrying more than once. False. Again, if you have the blueprint, that should not be necessary. Question three. After marriage, I will persuade my spouse to come around to my way of thinking. False. Unlikely. You want to be sure that you don't make an erroneous assumption about really important things. I'm not talking about coming around about where to go on vacation or what kind of car to buy. I'm talking about something like uh, having children, what part of the country to live in. Those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. 
Question four. My spouse or significant other can verbally abuse me. False. Absolutely not. No woman nor man should allow anybody to verbally abuse them. Question five. Society dictates that it is better to be unhappily married than to remain single. I believe that in many parts of the world that is correct, that that's true. If you look at our presidents, have we ever elected a president that doesn't have a wife? It's a very interesting phenomenon. When I was living in Israel, the men in their 20s were desperate to get married. Daily, I would get marriage proposals, not because they wanted to marry me, but because they wanted to marry. And I think that we need to rethink whether marriage is for everyone. I know that I had a guest on who, after his first marriage, clearly said when I was interviewing him that he decided that marriage in and of itself was not the right fit for him. So I think that each one of us needs to make a decision as to whether marriage is the right fit for us. I hope that my listeners learned from my guests both Lisa and Cynthia were very open and shared their feelings and opened their hearts to us and want to thank both of them. I also believe that the creation of the blueprints for the right fit man or woman would really help to reduce the risk of marrying, divorcing, marrying, and divorcing. I would love to see your blueprints of the right fit spouses. Please email those to me, drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com. And as long as you don't put a W on Barrow, I should receive it. If you would like to share your story and blueprint on this show, please be sure to include that request. Feel free to call me at 310-441-5305. I'm based in Los Angeles. To listen to more Win Without Competing shows, I recommend my top 10 2009 shows. 
They are listed on the winwithoutcompeting.com site on the talk show host page under author. Note that these shows are listed in order of appearance. They are not ranked. While you're on the WIN site, I suggest visiting the homepage and signing up for my professional and personal newsletters to learn more about how to implement my RightFit method. You can also find out more about my book, Win Without Competing, where you can read excerpts on the WIN site, and also uh, you can look at uh, my speakers page and reviews. It's a fun site. For information about professional mentoring and personal mentoring, as well as all of my radio shows since October of 2008, visit drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. And for executive search services, barrowglobal.com. That's B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Thank you so much, Virgil, for joining me today. It was a great show. I enjoyed it very much. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will find professional success and personal happiness. Thank you for listening to the Win Without Competing show. Goodbye for now, Dr. Arlene. Thank <laughs> you.